We read God's Word in Luke 22, reading the first 34 verses of the chapter, Luke 22, verses 1 through 34. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. And there was also a strife among them which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. We read the word of God this far. 
just notice that the following verses in the chapter speak of a temptation that will come upon the disciples when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then again at the end of the chapter, the record of Peter denying his Lord. Call your attention to verses 31 and 32 of Luke 22. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Beloved saints in Jesus Christ, is there now, or was there at some previous time in your life, a greatest temptation which you faced? And not just, first of all, a temptation to commit this or that sin, but even more, a temptation to deny that Jesus was your Savior. To deny it perhaps in words. But if not in words, to say in your actions that you are not justified by His blood, not sanctified by His Spirit, do not have the hope of everlasting life, and did not want to be considered by anyone else to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ and the body of believers. Is there perhaps a great trial in your life presently or one in the past, which led to this temptation. As if you were saying, if this is how God is going to treat me in my life, why should I serve Him and be faithful to Him? That is the experience of the children of God, not every moment of our life, thankfully, but from time to time. In a moment of great temptation, not just temptation to commit this or that sin, but temptation to deny your Lord, did you not sometimes embolden yourself in that temptation by saying, where is Christ anyway? He sees, doesn't he? He sees what's happening to me. He sees what foes are doing. He sees what's going on in my heart and life. And he's not doing anything about it. If he loves me, why doesn't he put this temptation to an end? If at that moment you were to be told, your Lord sees and he is praying, what then would you say? I need him to do more than pray? I need him to leave his prayer stance and to come here and finish, put an end to my troubles and to my troublers? Or, if you heard in that moment that Christ is praying, would you be consoled, calmed, comforted, and encouraged? To Peter, after telling Peter that he will endure a great temptation, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Jesus gives this as the reason why Peter can be assured that he will be preserved. I have prayed for thee. It's the goal of the sermon today 
to comfort us by seeing that a praying mediator, an interceding Christ, is exactly the Savior who will preserve us from temptation. And in his prayers, he is doing the work of preserving. The great doctrine of the text, it must be understood then, is the preservation of the saints. That doctrine is set forth at length in the fifth head of the Canons of Dort, from which I will not be reading, but only alluding to from time to time in the sermon today. But that passage reminds us, that head of doctrine reminds us, as do the Scriptures and does our own experience, that you and I are so weak in ourselves that when tempted by Satan, we would not, could not stand a moment. We would certainly fall. If it were up to you and to me to persevere in faith in our own strength, so that God gave us grace to save us from sin, but said, now use that grace rightly, and then you'll get to heaven. We would never get to heaven. But God preserves. And He does that by keeping us not from sinning. We are led sometimes into temptation. But keeping us from sinning the sin unto death. By preserving the grace of regeneration, the life of Jesus Christ in us, so that that life is not completely lost. Strengthening it even. And invariably, inevitably, bringing the child of God in temptation to repentance again, as he said to Peter, and when thou art converted. That's the preservation of the saints. There are many components to how God carries out that work. Here is one. An interceding mediator. I call your attention to our text under the theme, Christ's prayer for Peter's preservation. First of all, notice that he predicts a violent shaking. Second, that he assures Peter of messianic intercession. And third, that he requires of Peter a grateful response. In the text, Jesus refers to a great temptation that will come upon all of the disciples. And he refers to that temptation by the figure of the sifting of wheat. The temptation would be that temptation to deny that Jesus Christ was their Lord and Savior and to deny that they were his followers. This is the very night in which he will be arrested and betrayed. The very night in which he will be brought to the upper room and at that moment the disciples, rather the room of the high priest, at which moment the disciples will flee from him. The very night when in the courtyard of the high priest's palace, three times Peter will be asked, aren't you also one of his? And three times Peter will say, I am not, getting bolder and bolder every time until finally he takes the Lord's name in vain. He curses, I know not the man. This is that night. So near is the temptation in terms of time that Jesus tells Peter, Satan hath desired to have you. And again, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. 
the one hand, from the viewpoint of the Savior, this denial of His disciples, this falling into temptation on their part, was a necessary part of His suffering. And you and I are reminded that God uses even sin to accomplish His good purposes, which is no excuse for our sins, but it is a comfort. For Jesus Christ must show that He's bearing the curse of sin. And one aspect of the curse of sin is that He's left all alone. Sin separates humans. Sin destroys relationships. And sin, and the bearing of the effects of sin, will also temporarily interrupt the relationship of Christ and His disciples so that He's all alone. None helps Jesus Christ suffer the wrath of God. But that doesn't excuse the disciples again. That wasn't their motive. They weren't saying God has some good reason in His counsel why we should deny Christ, so we will. They were afraid for their life. If Jesus' life is in danger, then theirs must be too, and they will deny Him for their own self-preservation. I use the word deliberately. The preservation of saints is the work of God preserving us in faith and grace. But when a child of God doesn't look to God for that, when a child of God thinks it's all up to me, then we do whatever we can to preserve our own hide, our own life, our own earthly reputation. And that never works. But it is the danger to which we resort and the temptation that we face. The figure of sifting of wheat is to the point in explaining this temptation. Before the day of threshers and before the day of combines, when a man gathered in the wheat out of his field, he took a pitchfork or some other implement and he threw that wheat into the air violently with force so that the shaking of the wheat and the falling of the wheat to the earth again would separate the wheat from the chaff. It's especially the violence, the force with which the farmer had to do that, that's to the point here in making that an analogy of temptation. The temptation that the disciples would face was extremely violent. This was the Jesus Christ whom they had followed for the last three and a half years. This was the Christ of whom Peter said, Lord, to whom else shall we go? Thou alone hast the words of eternal life. This was the Christ who was going to be the King of the Jews and make of them a great nation. This was the man in whom all the hope of the disciples had been bound up. When therefore they would deny Christ... They were really saying, everything we lived for is in vain. It's over. It's finished. We were fooled for three and a half years. That's a violent temptation. If the disciples are subject to such temptations, beloved, you and I have to see that we too can be and from time to time are. The application of the text to us is not hypothetical. It's not just suggesting that at times this might be true. It's a recognition that this does become true 
of you and of me. For Satan dangles before you and me also the prospect of departing from the Christian faith and departing from the law of God. And he dangles that before us in the form of convincing us, if he can, that it is more pleasurable. It will bring greater rewards. In the end, we will come out ahead. If we turn aside from the law and from the word of God, if we deny Jesus Christ, if we deny that there is a God, or if there is, if we confess him to be an evil God who's only out to get us, Satan tempts us in this way. Sometimes he uses other circumstances of our life, trials we would call them, to do it. But he doesn't. He knows how. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 reminds us that there is no temptation that overtakes us but such as is common to man. And that means that the temptations that the disciples faced are those that come upon the people of God also from time to time. The most violent, not just being the temptation to steal from the store. The most violent, not just being lust for one who is not one's spouse, though those are violent temptations, but the most violent being to deny our Lord. Explaining the violence of this temptation are two factors that come out both in the text and also in the Canons of Dort in the fourth article, if you should read that article, and see what it teaches about temptation. The first factor is Satan. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Behind all temptation is the great adversary of the church and of Jesus Christ himself. This makes sense to you and to me. It fits with what the Scriptures tell us elsewhere. It is not God who tempts. Though we pray, lead us not into temptation. Though God, who is sovereign over all of history, does at times permit His child to fall, lead us into a circumstance in which we will fall, yet He does not tempt. He does not work in our hearts the desire, the attraction towards sin, but Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. I am tempted when I am led aside of my own lusts, and it's Satan working in me to lead me and draw me aside. Satan, the archenemy of God, and the one who has as his great goal to destroy the church of Christ, the kingdom of God, and all the purposes of God in realizing his covenant, Satan is behind every temptation. So Jesus Christ says, Satan hath desired you. The word desire, and the Greek word so translated, does not merely mean that it was Satan's wish or will or purpose of heart. It means something more. It means that Satan asked God permission to attack 
and destroy the disciples. Very similar then to what we read in Job when we read that Satan comes before God, though Satan there was in heaven, comes before God and asks God's permission, and God gives him that permission. So did Satan. What this reminds us of is that Satan himself knows he is under God's control. Let that be one point that comforts you in your battles against Satan. He himself knows he's not sovereign. He himself knows he cannot accomplish anything that God will not let him accomplish. He must come and ask God's permission to trouble the church and the disciples of God. And he does that here. But That word translated desire doesn't merely refer to a request. It refers to a very arrogant demand. Satan hath demanded you. He came to God and said, as it were, God, you are not right to work faith in them. You are not right to preserve them. You are not right to hold out before them the hope of heaven. You must let me destroy them. What gives Satan the boldness, the gall, to do that? There is from one viewpoint the fact that Christ had not yet died. That though the death of Christ was promised and the Old Testament saints all along knew that they would be reconciled to God on the basis of blood, that offering had not yet been given. That's one thing that emboldened Satan. But another was the fact that he has already gotten Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot will be the means to bring Jesus to the death of the cross. And if one of the twelve can be the means, then Satan demands that he have the other eleven also, so that they can all deny Jesus Christ. That God let him do it in one instance means God should let him do in eleven more. Now this explains the violence of our temptations. Satan arrogantly saying to God, They don't deserve heaven. I ought to bring them to hell where they deserve to go. And God's saying to Satan, try them, tempt them, but they will still end up going to heaven. The second factor that's found in the text that explains the violence of the shaking or temptation or sifting as wheat is the weakness of you, of me, and of the disciples. Violence is not going to help the break the branches of an oak tree off an oak. That is a violent sifting, a violent threshing, a violent throwing in the air. The oak tree is too strong. But such violent activity will help destroy The wheat, or cause the wheat to separate from the chaff. The wheat is weak. And so Jesus Christ underscores the weakness of the disciples when he says, Simon, Simon. Don't forget that at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus had given to Simon another name, Peter. 
John 1, verse 42. And when Jesus said to Simon, you were born being named Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter, he meant really to say to Peter, to Simon, you are in yourself a weak human, but I am going to make of you a rock by grace. Now when Jesus calls him Simon, that's significant. There are times when he calls him Peter. He does again in verse 34, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. But in our text, Simon, as if to say, Simon, don't forget who you are by nature. You are not Peter by nature. You are not strong in yourself. You're a human. You're a sinner. You're weak. Don't think you can stand in your own strength. This explains also then the violence of our temptations, our own weakness. We're humbled, aren't we? We sometimes like to think that we're so strong. And sometimes that's exactly why God leads us into temptation. You think you're strong? You can lift 100 pounds, you can do construction work for a 10-hour day and not come home overly exhausted from it. You think you're strong? Try this once. If somebody says, you're not a Christian, are you? You have the strength to confess your Lord? And every one of us must say, I don't. Not in myself. I don't. I am weak. This makes necessary the words of Jesus Christ to Peter, assuring him that Jesus is praying for him. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Notice one thing, first of all, that you would overlook unless you remember that the pronouns that were used to refer to others, to you in the 1600s, were different in the singular than in the plural. You might think that God was saying, Satan wants you, Peter, and I prayed for you, Peter. Or you might think that the Lord is saying, Simon, uh, Satan wants the disciples, and I prayed for the disciples. But notice the change in pronouns and understand the significance of that. Satan hath desired to have you, the eleven, the twelve really, but I have prayed for thee. I am praying for Peter, and Peter especially. That's the promise of Jesus Christ. One thing that says to you and to be is not that he does not pray for any others, but that his prayers to God on behalf of our preservation are very specific. He names us by name. He does not merely pray generally that the saints of God and those for whom he died be preserved. He prays for you by name, for me by name. He brings our own immediate cause before the Lord in prayer and makes it his own burden. Why Peter? Well, as one of the twelve, of course, he would suffer the same temptation, but there's more than that. On the one hand, Peter is the leader, the spokesman of the twelve. He appears that way so often. 
If therefore Satan, who has already gotten Judas Iscariot to betray his Lord, can now get Simon Peter to deny his Lord, then as far as Satan is concerned, the other ten are in the bag. He doesn't have to do a whole lot more work to get the other ten to turn aside from Jesus Christ. The whole band of disciples will be destroyed and dissolved. It all hinges on Peter. Now that on the one hand, there was some objective truth to that. But on the other hand, that's Satan's folly too. He knows you and me better than we know ourselves sometimes. I don't mean to say he's ignorant or doesn't understand human nature. But what he forgets is that a leader can fall and God will still preserve his church. Satan's folly is to think that it all hinges on the leaders. But in the, additionally, why Peter? Because the weakness of Simon Peter's human nature is such that his own denial of Jesus Christ would be injurious to the glory of God. For Peter, you see, did things boldly. He did things a hundred percent. He confesses, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he's all there, his new man is making a beautiful testimony. And when Peter will deny Christ, it won't be in the form of saying, well, I'm second guessing. I'm not sure now. It will be in the form of making an absolute statement. I do not know the man. And that's a flat out denial of Jesus as Savior, of God as the God who reconciles His people, Satan knows if he can get Simon to deny Christ, many will follow. So I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Though Jesus at the time he spoke it was on earth, you and I are pointed to his exaltation. The fact that the risen and ascended Lord sits now at the right hand of God. And He has every split second of the day free and ready access to the ear of God. And because He's the Son of God who laid down His life on the, death of, on, on the cross for us and showed His love for God and His commitment to the will of God, he has not only the ear of God, but he has the heart of God. He has access to the heart of God. And when he prays on our behalf, the Lord hears. Jehovah God hears. And that's the word that Jesus Christ says to Peter, in the moment of your great temptation, you yourself oblivious to it, and as I remind you, you're denying that it's going to happen, but I have prayed, and I am praying for thee. That is our Savior. You see His love? He prays because He sees our need. He prays because He sees how close Satan is to accomplishing Satan's goal from an earthly viewpoint. He prays because he sees how oblivious we are to the danger in which we stand. 
And instead of saying, I will leave the throne room, I will leave heaven, I will go down and I will take Satan away from that person right now and I will show the person that I'm right with them. Instead of that, instead of some miracle of that nature, he says, I'm praying with the heart of a Savior who loves his people with an unending love. I am praying. What Satan had done Come to God and ask. Jesus Christ does. Comes to God and asks. Only the Greek words translated in our text, Satan hath desired and I have prayed, are two very different words for good reason. Satan came demanding as if his wish was what God must do. Jesus Christ comes as the representative of God's people and elect, as the one who laid down his life for us, as the one who really has a true foundation for his prayer, a basis in which to present this petition. Satan comes desiring the destruction of the sinner. Jesus Christ comes with a view to the sinner's salvation. If you hear that Satan is demanding you, and that in response to Satan's demand to God, Jesus Christ is praying for you, it is well with you. Not in every earthly circumstance it shall be well with you, but it is well with your soul. I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And there you have the essence of what the preservation of saints is. That the saints preserved does not mean that we never fall into sin. Does not mean that we are preserved at every moment in strength of godliness and in devotion to the will and purposes and law of God. It does mean that our faith, through the temptation and through the test to which it is subjected, will come forth Genuine, that thy faith fail not. The way in which God is pleased to cause the faith of his children to appear genuine is not the way of never subjecting that faith to a test. It is rather the way of causing that faith to be tested severely and being preserved. What a beautiful word not only to us individually, because Peter represents every child of God, but what a beautiful word to the office bearers of the church of Jesus Christ. For implied in the fact that if Satan were to manage to get Peter, Peter's faith to fail, implied is that really isn't that hard, no matter who the leaders of the church, wherever the church is, to get the leaders of the church also to leave Christ and leave off their confession. And when the Lord says, but I have prayed for thee, Peter, he's reminding pastors, elders, deacons, that he has us before his mind too. 
that with a view to the preservation and safety of the church on earth, He will give grace to the leaders to persevere in faith and godliness. Then let us not be like Peter, fellow office bearers, and deny our need and deny the danger in which we stand, but rather confess it and beseech Christ to keep us safe. There are several points, though, to bring out of the text now that underscore what the preservation of saints is. How does God carry out that work? And the main point I'm making from this text is that he does it on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross and in the way of the intercession of Christ. At the right hand of God, Jesus Christ intercedes on the basis of his shed blood. Understand that therein already is the evidence of the preservation of saints. Jesus Christ is not just dead. He hasn't prayed for you and for me before he died, and now he's dead, and now he can't pray again. But when he was alive, he prayed. He is alive. His body has been raised again. Death has no more power over it. Satan can no more get Jesus Christ. And he is alive at the right hand of God. Evidence that God's cause is victorious. If God's cause is victorious in Jesus Christ, and if you and I are united to Jesus Christ by a true and living faith, that faith he's worked in us will persevere. Don't think little of an interceding Savior, but be amazed that he should pray for us. Then why? Why the perseverance of saints? Why the perseverance of saints in the way of letting Satan test instead of in destroying Satan now? And that's a question we sometimes have, don't we? The moment of great trials. Why doesn't it end now? Why are not the wicked destroyed now? Why is not my sinful nature, that old man of sin, destroyed completely now? Why? And the answer again of God is, with regard to Satan, he must see what a fool he is. He will rage. That's Psalm 2. He will rage against Christ and against the kingdom of God. Let him rage. He will not prevail He must see it, but he's going to see it in the way of fighting. And then for you and for me, let us see that this preservation of saints is itself a testimony to the ongoing love of God and power of God's grace for us. It's not just something that happens, as it were, by default. Let us see that the grace of God is something in which we stand in need every day. Something he shows and exercises on our behalf every day. And let this lead us to pray the prayer, lead us not into temptation. A third point to underscore about the doctrine of the preservation of saints that comes out of the text is that you and I can and do attain the assurance of this preservation For Jesus Christ's word to Peter, the word of the God who cannot lie, the word of the Christ who loved his own with an unending love, was this. 
I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, for make no mistake about it, Peter, thou shalt be converted. Peter had the assurance of preservation. The Arminians deny. Rome denies. And any other religion that has man's works and what man must do in order to placate or satisfy an angry God, every such religion inherently denies that you or I can be sure that we will be preserved and persevere in grace and in faith. Because it's up to you. It's up to me ultimately. And I don't know tomorrow, I don't know today if I'll be faithful tomorrow. And if I should be unfaithful tomorrow and die tomorrow in my unfaithfulness, in the end I might not get to heaven or enjoy whatever blessings salvation consists of. Where does that leave you and me? What comfort does that rob us of? But the Reformed faith, based on the Scriptures, and with appeal now to a number of passages, but for the moment, just the Word of God in our text, is this. You, child of God, know with certainty that you will go to heaven. Not that the way to heaven will be an easy road, Not that you will successfully resist and withstand every temptation that befalls you. That the Lord will bring you again to repentance. Will keep the seed of regeneration for perishing. And he lets you know he will already now. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted. Which is then to say also that the intercessions of Jesus Christ are not in vain. That Jehovah God hears them. And for the sake of the blood and the suffering of his only begotten son. And in love for his son who is the head. He will answer those petitions. The saints will be preserved. This is the work of our Savior Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why Rome and Arminianism says this is a bad doctrine, this preservation of the saints, is that it leads, they say, to ungodliness. Now that you know you're going to go to heaven, why not live an ungodly life? You're going to get to heaven anyway. There's a logical fallacy in that, and then there's also really a denial or a forgetting of the grace of God. The logical fallacy is that those who are preserved are Saints, not just people, not just believers, not just those who will get to heaven. Saints in whom God has worked the grace of sanctification. And if I take that to heart and appreciate and understand it, I'm not going to turn aside to sin lightly, willingly. There are times I will because I'm tempted. But if I understand the grace of God, and that's the other thing that they forget, the grace of God is not just a grace that is manifest in eternity past by saying I've chosen some to salvation, and it's going to be seen in eternity future by saying everyone who I chose to salvation gets to heaven. 
It's a grace that leads us there step by step throughout this earthly life. And it does so by transforming not just the body, but the heart and the soul and the mind and the will. And God's going to preserve that work in us. He's going to preserve the work of sanctification in us. That's why they're foolish to think that this will lead to ungodliness. Jesus Christ underscores the point too when in our text he requires of of Peter a grateful response. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. The conversion to which Jesus refers is really the moment at which the resurrected Jesus will appear to Peter and restore him to the office of disciple and make him an apostle and say to him, now you're going to preach this gospel. You fell so low in order that you might testify that it is the grace of God alone that preserved you. And now you have a richer, a deeper, a fuller understanding of the gospel and you are entrusted to preach it to Gentiles, but especially for Peter's sake, to Jews. And part of the work, part of the goal of preaching is to strengthen the brethren, to establish them in their faith. When you see another Peter who is tempted, when you see another about to fall, not fall away, that cannot happen, but fall into sin, strengthen, build them up. Today too, It is often the testimony of one who at one point fell deeply into sin, questioned the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, thought at one point to leave the Christian faith. It is often the testimony of such a one that they desire to be a means in the hand of God to encourage and build up any other who are facing that temptation and to tell them, don't, don't give in. Jesus Christ truly is Lord. And what Jesus says he'll do to Peter and what he requires of Peter here is what the psalmist, David, no less, said he would do in Psalm 51. Then will I teach transgressors thy way and sinners shall be converted unto thee. I ask then those of you who've fallen into sin grievously in the past, and been converted. Is not this your desire too? Not only to avoid that temptation, to seek grace, to fight it again, but to visit, build up, strengthen, encourage, console others who are. Strengthen thy brethren. A reason also why he who holds the office of the pastor must be, ought to be, one who knows sin and the depths of sin, and one who knows the grace of God preserving. So that as he goes about the work of the pastoral ministry, he can strengthen his brethren, knowing the power of God. But then, the broader application to all of us. The doctrine of the preservation of saints does not lead to godless law-despising living that leads one to adore the mercies of God, to humble ourselves before Him 
with adoration and humility that He would choose us and then preserve us when we fell into such great sin, it makes us more thankful and more holy. That's its effect. That's the carrying out of the prayer of our Savior. From time to time, we are subject to great, grievous temptations. On the one hand, temptation surrounds us, but I'm talking about that great temptation to deny God is our Savior, to deny that He's wise, to question His way for us and say that I won't serve Him if that's how He treats me. Have you fallen into that temptation in the past? Have you wondered why your Lord didn't prevent it or put a stop to it right then and there? He was praying, and he still prays. What a Savior we have. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, we cannot but utter profound thanks to Thee for Thy preserving us, for Thy grace to us. And if now, in this hour, somebody is near to falling, and every one of us is susceptible, do Thou therefore preserve and strengthen us in this spiritual warfare, that we may constantly and strenuously resist our foes, till at last we obtain a complete victory. For Christ's sake, amen. Sing 385.